This recording is a production of the Conservative Anabaptist Education Committee. This presentation was recorded at Conservative Anabaptist School Board Institute 2019, held in Montgomery, Indiana, on March 1 and 2. Good afternoon. Grade 1, ready or not? For most of the time, it's not an issue. Those children, yeah, they're six years old, they're ready for first grade. But what if they're not ready for first grade? School boards, are you ready? Do you have a plan of action? Do you have something in place that you're going to know what to do when it's not working out? Could we save ourselves a lot of drama and headache if that first grader that's in our school now had waited another year to come to school. Oh, what will the parents think? What will the grandparents think? <laughs> All right, I've got seven things that I want to focus on. Number one, cultivate a mentality of what is good for the child, not what is good for the parent. Occasionally in a, in a community, you have a family with a lot of young children, and in mom's mind especially, the idea is, is that if I can get this child to go to first grade, I've got a built-in babysitter. That's a wrong concept to send children to school by. Let's just be blunt with it. Mm -hmm. That's what happens sometimes. And, the, and maybe the child doesn't quite make the cutoff date as far as what you do have set up. Hopefully you have something set up, and we'll talk about that in a little bit here. But they don't quite make the cutoff date, but I just like to get them out of the house. So please, school board, will you please let my child go to school this year, ready or not? School boards, you are in the driver's seat here. Don't let the parents dictate to you about their child going to school because they're so sure that Johnny is so smart and so able and you know if you could just get him to be still a little bit he's a kind of a blur running around the room yeah that's what the first grade teacher is going to face too is the child harmed if they are forced to wait a year no I, I just don't know of any cases in my life in my experience with visiting schools and going places and talking to other teachers where a child was harmed by being held back from first grade for a year. Can a child be harmed by being sent to first grade and he's not ready for it? Yes, absolutely. Number two, have an age deadline and stick to it. Our school handbook says first graders must be six years old by September 30. In my opinion, that's too late, but that's what ours say. I've taught first grade for seven years, way back, way back. And my daughter is in her 11th year working in that position. She said, Dad, it really ought to be more like the middle of the summer or even the end of the previous year, like May 30. May 30 would be a good date. But even that doesn't, you know, that date is just something for you as a school board to go by. First year I taught first grade, I had a child in first grade whose birthday was September 29, that's when he turned seven, and I had a child in second grade whose birthday was September 29, 
and that's when he also turned seven. And there was a lot of difference. One was in first grade, one was in second grade, and that first grader was easier to control and handle and work with than the other one that came to school. Hey, he was within the deadline. Number three, I hope you have kindergarten at your school. Maybe you don't. I'm here to try to talk you into that. Have kindergarten with purpose. Kindergarten is a good way to ascertain whether that child should be in first grade next year or whether they need more help. One thing I feel like we have going for us in our community is we have moms who are worried that their child's not gonna make it. That's a blessed experience. <laughs> because those moms come to my daughter and they say, oh, I, I just don't think that my child is really ready for first grade. You're going to tell me, right? Yeah, she'll tell them. And see, we're having kindergarten right now. We're just about at the end of it, February, March. And during that time, my daughter tries to discern things that individual children need to work on and the moms come and say, what, what does my child need before they start school next September? That's when we give the tests too, to see if there's a, you know, a readiness test. Have kindergarten with purpose and have a knowledgeable teacher in charge of that. It needs to be someone that has a good concept of what it's like to teach and preferably first or second grade at least and know what they're up against. If you don't have kindergarten, and even if you do, it's good for your school, and school boards, you need to make this happen, maybe through the teacher, whatever. Have things for the parents to work on at home. Here's some of the things that my daughter and I came up with. Know how to use scissors and glue. Some children don't. Counting and recognizing numbers up to 100. Tracing, eye-hand coordination. How to sit still. Are we working on that in church, family devotions? They should know and recognize letters. They don't need to know those sounds, but if they could just know their alphabet and know what it is when they see it, they should be emotionally ready. And that's the catcher there. Are they emotionally ready? Sometimes they're mentally able, they're mentally capable of going forward, but they're not emotionally ready. I know of a child that is doing okay in school, but she keeps asking, is this right, is this right? I, I, I don't know if I know this. And that's very worrying on a teacher. And there's a lot of maturity between where we're at in the school year now, if you're doing kindergarten, and first grade next year. Number five, give a readiness test and give it early. That's not something that should be done in July, something like that. At least by the end of school, preferably back in maybe March, about right now, give that readiness test. Our school handbook says all students must take a pre-entry test before admission into first grade. They must pass with a C or better. This test should be announced at the end of the first semester. It will be given near the end of the school year by the first grade teacher. And that's just what our school handbook says. You come up with your own guidelines there, but that's something that you need to have in place and it gives you backup for making choices and decisions. Number six, communicate. Communicate with the teachers, especially if you have that kindergarten teacher. Sit down with their uh, towards the end of the kindergarten time 
How's things going? How are, how are, how are the students doing, individual students? Communicate to parents. Are you aware that your child is having some issues here? Use the power of suggestion there. Maybe it'd be better if they waited a year. What do you think about that? And you must take positive uh, communication as well, or I mean, the actual communication may be, no, we feel like your child does need to wait another year to come to school. And communicate, don't worry uh, only about what's happening in kindergarten or before first grade. Once first grade has started though, you better know, school board, what is happening in that classroom. Or you're gonna end up with a very frustrated teacher that won't teach for you next year. Is that what you want? No. Do we just always give teachers everything they want? No, we don't do that either. Number seven, stay the course. If you made a choice, you're going forward, stay the course, but be ready to reevaluate. I still remember the first year that I taught first grade. There was a second grader there who had done poorly in first grade. Should she have come to first grade the year before? No. That's, that's my hindsight from now, <laughs> looking back at that. But her parents came to me and they said, Lyndon, do you think she should do first grade over? As a brand new first grade teacher, I had no idea. I said, I don't know. I mean, she's doing okay with her grades. That was one mistake I wish I'd go back and fix. She struggled all the way, rest of the way through school. And when, when we allow our emotions <laughs> to override our common sense about first grade, we might be doing what the parents want us to do, or maybe even what the child thinks they want to do, but we're not doing necessarily what is best for the child throughout their learning experience. When and how to dismiss a teacher? Well, this is an easy one. Just fire them all and start all over again. <laughs> Part of this dismissing, though, we're going to consider as maybe not rehiring a teacher. You know, because we don't often dismiss teachers, but we have to sometimes make the choices as school boards to not rehire. So that will be included in this dilemma. Probably most school board members are business owners or work in a business. Uh, so just dismiss teachers like you would an employee who doesn't meet your standards. Step up to the plate and fire him or her. Groan. <laughs> you know, is that right? How about this one? Most school board members and teachers are fellow believers in Christ and members in his body. So, don't dismiss a teacher like you would an employee. Step into the mess and disciple him or her. First, we'll discuss when. What are some of the occasions for dismissal or non-renewal of contract? And we're going to call these uh, teacher problems. There's four of them that I've identified. Four teacher problems, possible reasons for dismissal of a teacher or non-renewal of contract. The first one is incompetence or inability. 
Teacher incompetence or inability is a serious and consequential condition that needs to be addressed. Uh, merely hoping for better doesn't usually make it better uh, or make it go away. Uh, in this case, dismissal should not be a surprise uh, because teachers need to be regularly evaluated by competent evaluators and with areas to improve clearly identified uh, when helps offered and then follow-up occurring. Uh, and then if the teacher is unable or unwilling to grow in competency, it may be time to release him or her. The second teacher problem I've identified as relationship conflicts or insubordination. Teachers that don't get along with people, whether they're co-teachers or board members or the principal or parents or the students or the church or the law, teachers like that can't serve well. They are leaven in the dough. Better early than late should be the mantra for dealing with this scenario. Again. There should be no surprises here. This should have been worked with and appropriately addressed and incrementally increasing pressure to reform and change. And then if that doesn't happen, you have to consider dismissal. The third teacher problem that we want to identify is the worn out teacher. The worn out teacher, the, the a teacher who is no longer effective Worn-out teachers or teachers who have lost their effectiveness can be difficult terrain to navigate. They have perhaps made a great contribution in the past, but the fire is gone. This, this may just be the time for younger, fresher blood to enter into your school. Perhaps a sabbatical might be in order. Perhaps a reassignment or a lesser responsible position would be appropriate. Again, there should be no surprises. This thing should have been under discussion, ongoing, for a while before you would consider something this drastic. And this one will call for, and we'll talk about this in when, I mean, in, sorry, in how, uh, it talks for dealing in, with respect and love in this case. The fourth teacher problem, uh, I want to identify as moral or ethical issues. <clears throat> a teacher in serious moral failure, whether acknowledged publicly or privately, should in most cases be removed from positions of leadership and influence, especially if it affected or injured others. Because of the toxic nature of moral sins and the current legal and social climate of our day, it is better to err on the side of caution rather than secrecy, especially when it involves others. So depending on the situation, though, you can name the different situations, but depending on the situations, this might not be a permanent removal, but maybe a stay of responsibility. And now how? How do we dismiss teachers or not renew their contracts in these situations. The number one issue was the teacher problem was incompetence or inability. Uh, 
It is important in a case like this to point out that incompetency as a teacher does not imply incompetency for other types of work. One can be an upstanding, solid, wonderful brother or sister in the local church, but may not be able to manage or handle the classroom pressures. Not everyone can teach. Not everyone is endowed with that gift of teaching. It is important to point out their strong points and actually recommend other fields of service if this is the case. And take responsibility, too, for hiring him or her. And remind ourselves, too, that just because a person was friendly and outgoing and articulate or might love children doesn't necessarily mean they'll make a great teacher. This is what we did with, uh, when I was on the school board. Uh, I was a teacher. We hired him for a year. And uh, then the discussion came up at when it was time to ask teachers to teach again. Do we, te do we ask this, this brother or don't, don't we? And uh, there was enough questions about competency and that kind of thing. The children loved him. The students loved him. They, they, they considered him an angel, you know, in the classroom perhaps. But teaching wasn't occurring. He, it, it, the children weren't learning. And he was inconsistent in some of his discipline methods as well. And we worked with the situation some. When it came time to actually uh, tell him that we're not going to ask him back, we had to kindly recommend another field of service. With his servant heart, with his soft heart that he had, we said we would recommend other ways of serving rather than, than teaching school. And we left on good terms, left on good terms with that situation. And so it's important that we understand that this doesn't mean they're gonna be incompetent in everything else if this is the case. Number two situation was uh, re relationship conflicts or insubordination. First course of action in this kind of situation is to make him or her aware of the conflicts. You know, we can be blind to our own conflicts. We are blind to our own blind spots, obviously. But we, we need to be specific and actually divulge the details. Name it with a tangible handle. Give it a handle. Give it something you can hold on to and say, here is what we see happening. It, you're, you're sowing discord. Or, you know, something, uh, give it a handle that they can actually say, oh, that's what it is. That's something that I can repent of. But if it's nebulous or intangible or abstract that you just say, you're just not getting along with people, you know, we, we need to be able to specify and be more specific about those things like that. Be scriptural. Don't lecture. Appeal to their better judgment and incrementally apply pressure to change. Try to bring him or her to repentance, to see their role in the conflict, and then to function in the spirit and not the flesh. Essentially, the process of uh, dismissing a, a teacher or discipling a teacher that has relationship conflicts or insubordination should pretty much look like a Matthew 18 approach. Warn, discipline, and if necessary, then dismiss. Now for the worn out teacher, number three. The worn out teacher or the ineffective teacher. Come to agreement if, con if possible. Come to consensus. Be negotiating. Talk. 
talk this through, express sincere appreciation for their years of service and help to the church. But be honest, too. Be honest. We need to lay it out there in ways that we can all understand and that there is no bushes to beat around and no second guessing. Again, let all you do be done in love, 1 Corinthians 16, 4. And then for moral, ethical, moral and ethical issues and criminal activities, uh, whatever that might be, um, be firm. Be firm. Explain that this is a pre-established response. Be decisive. Forgive where possible, but don't cover up and slide it under the school rug. I don't know if you were aware of it, but I, I'm taking this, this uh, little talk from, uh, or for, uh, Mark Webb. Mark gave me some of his notes in advance here just uh, the other day, and I'm going to read one little section that he had here. Boards often err on the side of, wanting, of not wanting to hurt the teacher, nor do they want to have to find a replacement. So they fail to adequately consider the lasting damage done to the students, parents, school, and church because of an incompetent or failing teacher. It is the board's responsibility to step up to the plate and do the difficult things for the best of the school. This does not mean not working with the teacher's needs. But if it does not get better, you might as well deal with it sooner rather than after the damage is done. Finally, to dismiss midterm is serious and tricky. Nevertheless, it may be required for serious moral ethical issues or relationship issues that crop up. Always consider what is the right thing to do, not what is the convenient thing to do. It matters not whether or not this is a convenient season. <laughs> be loving. Dismissal should be an act of love and an effort at redemption. This is the essential difference between a regular job, a regular job, and serving in a church school. Dismissal and discipleship should be paired. Let all you do be done in love. 1 Corinthians 16, 14. School sounding pretty real right now. Isn't it school boards? I begin with three stories. Story number one. Susie's parents want to enroll Susie into the school. The problem is Susie's dad has a job in which one of the perks of, of his job is a uh, <clears throat> two-week all-expense paid trip to the Caribbean. The course of the conversation, the question is posed, how much would I have to pay in order to take off those two weeks with, with, with little Susie? Story number two, said child, Susie. Did the kindergarten, kindergarten testing, scored on the lower edge of the test. Recommendation is that Susie doesn't come to school that year. Upon which the parents went to two other teachers, not in our school. One from the public school, after all that teacher's credentialed, knows what she's talking about, and one from another Mennonite school. 
and was told firmly by both parties that indeed Susie is ready for school and we would be ridiculous not to take her. We talked things through eventually. We decided to retest after some summer work the family did. The ultimate decision was that she could come to school. She is currently the second from the bottom academically, socially, and emotionally. Story number three. There's a wedding in the far west. Uh, A request for a, a day off turns into a request for four days off. It's a long ways out there. I assumed it meant it was a driving trip, but it was a flying trip, actually. And uh, we have policy about absences. And uh, those four days allowed for almost six days of time with the family at the wedding. Only I happened to know, unbeknownst to the brother, that it was also the opening of elk season. I need to remind us that 99% of our parents are wonderful. They're supportive. They want what's best. Um, But there is also, we're always faced with, with parents who are unhappy, who send emails that are not kind, or they jump to conclusions without all the facts and assume the worst. These are manipulative parents. They're overly involved. They're buying their way to their own will. They intimidate teachers and principals and boards. They share their concerns with others. Parenting has changed. A new, more recent term that sociologists are using is overparenting. Can you believe we're actually saying that? Helicopter parents, we can't let go of our children. We're overbearing. Now, it is possible for parents and teachers to become helicopters because they have a controlling spirit. That happens sometimes. And adults who struggle with feeling out of control find it difficult to trust others to deal with items they hold precious. So they tend to be hovering and micromanaging in style. They mean well, but they feel it's up to them to make sure that life turns out well for their uber-awesome children. Now, I think we know the problems with this. And ultimately, for the good of the child, adults sometimes need to learn to trust the process of school. Because control really is a myth. And the sooner we figure that out, the better we can lead our students into maturity and good functioning school and church life. So how do we deal with parents like this? Well, remind us of the baseline in dealing with any parents, whether it's from an administrative point of view as a principal or whether it's from a board member that needs to confront parents. The number one baseline is very simple. Ephesians 4.15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Truth. When we talk with parents who are causing us troubles, who are wanting their own thing, wanting their own way, we need to say it the way it is. We need to reflect reality to them. Rather than avoiding the issue, 
we need to say it the way it is. But we say it in a certain way. It's how we say it. The tone, the body language, the honesty with gentleness, clarity with compassion. Speaking the truth in love. Beating around the bush will never solve it. Dancing around it, trying to come at it from three different angles without ever naming the thing won't help either. You have to plow in sometimes with love. Now, one of the, I just have several ideas here for us to, to think about using that as the baseline. Three things. One is we need to work at maintaining relationship with those parents. These parents are difficult to relate to. It's awkward. We, you're never quite sure where they're coming from, what they're looking for. And that's never helpful. We need to think about our relationship. And in communication, then, is such a big part of that. Parents who know what's going on. I found it helpful to communicate with some humility. You see, I can take what people give me and give them the same medicine. And it feels better, it just works worse. When we communicate, it's easy to ignore these relationships until we have a big issue again. The problem is you have no basis upon which to solve the problem. So I find it helpful to work with, alongside parents, um, try to go to something they care about or find ways to get them on board so that you can be a partner with them rather than us versus them or a posture of antagonism we partner with them even though it's difficult secondly an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure my mother said establish meaningful dialogue before you get the problems it's connected to the first one so love the student as much as the parent does and don't make, the, don't make the child pay for the parent. When you start sensing things are going to be a problem, when you know that this announcement is going to create an issue, I like to one-up that and go to that parent first. So I just want to let you know, here's something we're going to be doing. And uh, I hope this is, uh, this is going to be a blessing. And I hope we can work on this together. And I'd like to see you help us here with this and get them on board before everyone else knows. Sometimes that actually really, really makes the difference. Ask for input. Get them involved. Be ahead of the controlling parent. Thirdly, I'm not going to say much about this. Realize that the issue at hand with these parents is deeper than what it looks like on the surface. There's stuff going on underneath that's creating the need to control the school, control you or the teacher or use the board. There's a lot more going on than meets the eye. Always figure out what that is. Seek first to understand, then to be understood.
Barrett Mossbacker offers a number of things to think about working with difficult parents, and I'm going to offer a few of his ideas here in closing. When you have difficult parents, don't be surprised. Everyone deals with controlling people. Don't become cynical. You aren't perfect yourself. Examine yourself. Remember the golden rule as noted by Jesus. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Always be respectful. Pray for difficult parents. Don't take it personally. To that I want to say, we have to have some thick skin sometimes. Deal with the situation. Move on. Don't hold a grudge then and, and allow a root of bitterness to color everything from that point on. But go ahead and take it on the chin. Board members have to take it on the chin sometimes. Next, forgive 70 times 7. Never respond in kind. By the way, there's no point giving ammunition to parents when you're the target already. Respond, don't react. Don't gossip about them. Lastly, protect your staff. As board members, do go ahead to allow your teachers to not take the brunt of some of these things that can happen wherever it's appropriate. This is part of life, it's part of church life, and the way we deal with our problems is redemptively, not reactively. The dress code. A practical dress code built on biblical principles and executed kindly promotes good behavior, good morals, and good morale. Three things to remember when you are thinking about the dress code of your school. First, seek to be very clear and very practical when you can. Examples, boys shall wear pants with no more than five pockets. Dresses must be at least mid-calf height. Logos on clothing should be smaller than a dollar bill. Camouflage is not permitted. Second, sometimes it is hard to be very clear and very practical. And we find ourselves struggling with general terms. S examples. Modest dresses are required. Shoes shall be conservative. Avoid tight-fitting shirts and pullovers. These are the rules that the students challenge. These are the rules that the students take liberties with. Why? Because who gets to, to define modest and conservative? and tight-fitting. Do the high school girls get to define that? Do the high school girls' moms get to define that? 
You know what's interesting here today? The first thing that's interesting here is that what, the kind of variety that we have. You, you know what's even more fascinating? Everybody here thinks they're modestly dressed. Okay, so how do we be clear when we have to use general terms? Is there anything we can do to make a general rule like modest dresses shall be required? Is there any way to be clear with that? Well, we've had our struggles with the dress code over the years. One thing that I feel is important is that we make clear to everybody who the interpreter of the dress code is. Maybe some of the rules are general, but can we at least make sure that the student body and their parents know who has the final say? Is that fair? Make sure the students view this interpreting body as like the umpires in a softball game, in a baseball game. The umpire makes a call and nobody argues with it. Is it still good in our day to teach young people that someone has the final say and when they make a call, we deal with it? Recently in, in my classroom, there was a, uh, one of the high school girls was upset because that evening she was having church council and she was ranting to her friends that I'm going to go in there and they're going to say about my dress and everything. And how do I respond to that? See, this is part of the hidden curriculum. And so I said, called her by name and I said, promise me that you will listen. And when they are all done speaking, that you will say, okay, I will. And she flashed me a great big grin, and I don't know the end of the story because I'm not, I was not sitting in that minister's room. Make sure that this interpreter is not just one person, but maybe a conferring body, maybe uh, the teaching staff since they're there every day, and make sure that these interpreters are very, very wise people and very, very kind and very, very so much next thing to Jesus. And then maybe you'll have some success. Third thing to remember, this will be the second time today that you heard this. Don't let your dress code become old fashioned. The trends and the fads come faster than we like to admit, so revisit it often and keep it up to date. A few proactive tips. Make sure that if you are going to change something, that you announce any changes or concerns well in advance to summer shopping. If you send out a letter two weeks before school starts of some things you want to see change to the dress code, you will more than likely have upset parents who just spent a lot of time and money getting ready for school. Another proactive tip, make it clear to the parents how you will deal with an infraction. And that can maybe take care of some difficulties when something goes wrong. Will you be talking directly to the offending student? Will they be receiving a phone call from the teaching staff? Or will they be receiving an email from the board? 
however it is, however you decide best, make sure that um, they know the procedure that you're going to use. I'd like to tell you about, warn you about two types of challengers because the dress code will be challenged. I don't care where you set the dress code, somebody will challenge it. Beware of the finger pointer. He is the one that when you address an infraction, he throws his fingers. I mean, if you're going to deal with me, why don't you deal with him? What are you going to do about this and what about that? Yes, you must be fair, but resist the urge to chase down every finger-pointing episode. If you let him chase you around, he will turn you into an exhausted legalist. Don't let him do it. Make your call and let the fingers fly. Second type of tap challenger, I don't, I, you, I suppose you read in the news about the Me Too movement. I don't know what you think of that. I don't know to what level you think that that has crept into our circles. But as an administrator, I would like to tell you that more than once I have been accused by the female section that I shamed them or I insulted them when I was only trying to do the job I was given to do. At least that's how I was looking at it. More than likely, most of your problems with a dress code will come with the girls. And as an administrator, I would just plead with you, is there some very, very wise, older group of ladies in your community that could help these girls so that I don't have to be accused of shaming them. I don't expect that it's possible to win out every time over the spirit of the age. But let's remember that we do have the spirit of Christ. And let's try to do it in that way. This will be the second time you heard this too. Don't forget to thank the 85 plus percent of your student body and patrons who faithfully do what they need to do every day without fussing and without complaining. Remember, a practical dress code built on biblical principles and executed kindly promotes good behavior, good morals, and good morale. I'm sure you maybe still have questions about this. Should we just go to school uniforms? Would that be just a great blanket statement to solve all the issues? Let's just get school uniforms. Maybe you wonder how teachers should dress. Should they come to school in blue jeans and a polo shirt? If you have questions like that, put them in that box out there and we'll address that tomorrow. God bless you. This recording and many others are available through Christian Learning Resource, the campus bookstore at Faith Builders. Order online at www.christianlearning.org or call 877-222-4769.